Welcome to Canvas Church. You are listening to our weekly celebration service message. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Joe Luman, and I am one of the pastors here at Canvas Church, and I am so very honored that I get to share a word with you today. Our pastors, um, our lead pastors, Ben and Katie, are out in Hawaii having a vacation. And how many of you know that they deserve a vacation and it's good for them? to go and spend time with family. So they are on vacation, they are having a great time, and we'll have them back next week. But in the meantime, I'm gonna share a word with you that I believe, um, no, you know what, I don't believe it. I know for a fact this is a word that God gave me for you. Um, When Pastor Ben told me that he wanted me to preach today, um, the the topic was worry. And we're talking about detox, and we've been talking about detox for a few weeks now. And we've been talking about detoxing relationships and detoxing from different things. And today we're going to talk about detoxing thoughts. And and we're going to start with the thought of worry. And not so much a thought as a behavior, right? The behavior of worry. And Pastor Ben not only gave me um, um, the the topic, but he also said, you know, I have some notes um, on it. Because he prepares his messages well ahead of time. And he has notes on the messages. And he gave me the the, the notes and I was reading through them. And they were so good. But I kept just being like, ah, that's... It's not what God wants me to preach. They are so good. So I kept making it happen. And I was like, I'm going to make this happen. This is going to work out. Um, and I kept reading through it. I'm like, this is so good. But I can't. I don't feel it. And God took me to Genesis 11. I'm sorry, 12 and 13. And Genesis 12 and 13 is a message I preached before. And I, I preached it to the youth. And it had nothing to do with worry. But God kept saying, I want you to revise that. I want you to revise Genesis 12 and 13. I was like, okay, well, Genesis is one of my favorite books. So I was like, all right, I'll do that. So I, I revised it and I started studying it and reading it over and over and over again. And, and I realized that that was the message that God wanted me to share with you. That was exactly the message that God wanted me to share. He impressed it in my heart so much that I couldn't even follow up on my Bible reading plan. I kept just reading Genesis 12 and 13 over and over and over again. So I hope that you receive something from the Holy Spirit today more than from me. Um, and... I hope that Genesis 12 and 13 comes alive as I share these words with you. So let me pray for the word, Lord God. I thank you for today. And I thank you, Lord God, for the word that you have put in my heart to share today. I thank you, Lord God, for your word that is just so full of incredible wisdom. I thank you, Lord God, that every word that comes out of my mouth is going to be a word that I share because of your grace and not because of my own strength. May not one thing that I say be said because I want to share it, but because the Holy Spirit has something to communicate to someone this morning. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, the thing with worry, uh, we're going to read Genesis 12. So, you know, if you want in your Bible, start heading there. We're going to read it in a minute. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's very, very easy to find. So find Genesis first book and then go to chapter 12. Um, But the thing with worry, you guys, is that worry, I mean, sure, worry is an actual physical thing. People feel it. Some people actually get ulcers from them. Um, I I know people, I have people in my life, and I know people that have ulcers, and when they went to the doctor, the doctor said, you know, the main reason for your your ulcers is that you worry and stress too much. So worry is a, a real thing. We all know what worry is, but the problem with worry when we have God in our lives is that it really is an evidence of our faith. Worry is an evidence of the lack of faith that we have in an area. The only reason why we would allow for worry to come in is because we don't have the faith to believe that God has something on the other side, right? Um, if we're worrying, it's because we don't believe that there is a God that can solve the problem. And the thing with faith, though, is that we don't know how much faith we have. Can somebody tell me, like, I have three measures of faith? 
right? Nobody knows how much faith they have. The only one that knows how much faith is in us is God. And being the wonderful, wonderful God that he is, though he may not seem so wonderful when he does this, is he allows trials and difficult times so that we can see our faith. Because if everything is easy peasy and everything is beautiful, you really don't get to know how much faith you have in you. Because if I tell you everything is great, here's your perfect husband, here's your perfect life, here's your perfect job, you're going to get uh, um, this amount of money and every six months you're going to get a raise, 25%, it's going to be great. The rest of your life, you don't have to worry, okay? Does that take any faith? None. None. But through trials and through hard times, we're able to see how much faith we really do have. And God allows it so that we can see in our heart like, oh, I, I thought you and I were tighter. <laughs> I thought we were in a better place, but in reality, I, I worry so much, and I want to take things into my own hands. There is not that much faith in me, and thank you for showing it to me. And this is what happens with Abraham. Um, and in chapter 11, Abraham gets introduced really briefly. They just say, like, all these people had babies and babies and babies, and then Abraham. And then uh, we get to chapter 12, and in chapter 12, it says that God spoke to Abraham. And it says that God told Abraham, I want you to go into another land. I'm not going to tell you where, just go. Pick up your family and go because where you live, the reason for God to say that is because where he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, it was a land that people did not glorify God, people did not honor God, and he wanted him out of that. And he said, I'm going to take you out of that land, just walk with your family, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And Abraham, I assume, the Bible doesn't specify, but I assume Abraham had never heard from this God. He lived in a land where they served other gods, but it took faith for him to say, okay, I'm going to believe you, random God, and I'm going to go to a land that you've not told me about, and I'm just going to go ahead, pack up, pack up my family, and go. So he does. He packs up his family. He brings his wife. He's 75 years old at the time. He's not, young, not a young man. He's 75 years old. All he's known, everything, his family, everything, he leaves behind. And he says to his wife, okay, let's go. He also says that to his and his nephew, Lot, um, that's not part of the plan, but sometimes when we obey God, we're scared, so we bring some people along. So he says, okay, come along, and they, they all leave. And they leave, and they get to this place, eventually, that's called Bethel, I mean, between Bethel and Ai. And we're going to read it right now. They get to this place between Bethel and Ai, and this is what happens. So are you ready? Chapter 12. Go with me to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. He, had, he left. You guys, he left. And then the Lord appeared again. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he says, Abraham, I know you left. And I know this is scary. But do you see this land? And the land was God. I'm going to give this to your children. I'm going to give this to, these, to your offspring. And he gets so excited. And he says, um, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had prepared to him, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. That word is hard. Um, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. 
and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for your wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abraham hears from God. He gets so excited. He gets into this place where he says, wow, God is going to give me all of these. God is going to give me all of these. And right after that, we hear that there is a famine in the land. And he is standing in between Bethel and Ai. And why do I keep repeating that? Because Bethel means house of God. Ai means ruins. And he's standing right in the middle of Bethel and Ai. And that will be significant later on. But he's saying, okay, I have, you, you gave me this. You're speaking to me. This God that is pretty amazing told me that all of these that looks amazing is going to be mine. And that is a triumph. I don't know if you've ever heard the voice of God. But if you haven't, trust me, it's a triumph where you hear the voice of God and you get so excited. Um, but right after triumphs, we usually have tests. And the reason for the test is twofold. Number one is because sometimes after triumphs, we get overconfident. And we think that everything that we've accomplished is because we are so wonderful and magnificent. And it's so because, you know, the reason why God brought me the phenomenal husband that I have is because obviously. Hello. <laughs> right? And then I forget. <laughs> I forget. That is because the grace of God, because it makes no sense that a Colombian woman that lived so, so far away met a man and they are such a perfect match. It could only be done because of God. Not because I'm wonderful or amazing or incredible, but because of God. So trials came after the wedding <laughs> to remind me. <laughs> the other reason why trials come after triumphs is because of what I mentioned earlier. Because faith allows for us to know, I'm sorry, trials allow for us where our faith is at. See, the Bible says that we move from glory to glory. We move from glory to glory. To move from glory to glory, we need to have trials because we need to have the glory of the trial. We don't move from comfort to comfort. We don't move from okay to okay. We move from glory to glory, which means all of these trials allow for our, for our faith to start increasing slowly. Because God knows where our faith is at. And his desire is that our faith increases so that we may continue to do the things that he wants us to do. Really, so that we may continue to inherit the promises that he has given us. Because without faith, we can't grab a hold of the promises he's given us. They just are promises in the distance. So Abraham gets here. He has a wonderful triumph. God says, this is going to be your land. And then a famine. Remember, Abraham has never been away from his family. He's never been alone. He's never known anything but or of the Chaldeans and his family and comfort. And then after that, he gets into a famine. And now he's alone in a land where he's nobody. Nobody knows him. He doesn't know anything. And now he has a family that is looking up to him and being like, there's no food, friend. What are we going to do? And he's like, I don't know. God told me to move here, but well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Egypt. We're just, we're just going to figure it out. We're going to go to Egypt. 
So he packs up his bags and he goes to Egypt. And just so you know, so you guys take notes, Egypt, when you're reading your Bible, Egypt always represents the world. Egypt always represents the system of the world. So he says, I'm going to go to the world. I'm going to go to where they are doing things according to the world. And I'm going to see what they are doing to get out of this famine so that I can provide for my family, so that I can protect my family. He allowed for worry to enter his heart and decided, I can fix this. I can figure this out. I can figure it out. How do you know that you're moving in the direction of faith? Because see, it's very easy for people to get up here and say, you guys, just move in the direction of faith. Just move in the direction of faith. And that's so ethereal. You're like, what? Is that right? Left, east, I-15, 5? Where do I go? I'm going to give you a recipe. Faith always, always, always moves in the direction of peace and hope. If you have peace and hope in your heart, you know you're walking in faith. Even if what you're doing makes no sense. My husband and I spent a few years working without income. And people kept asking us, like, you realize what you're doing, right? Yes. We actually got pregnant. Our first daughter was born and we had no income. And people kept looking at us like, what are you doing? We had peace and hope. We knew that what we were doing was inside of the will of God. There was no worry in our heart, you guys, none, because we knew we were moving in the direction of faith. On the opposite end, unbelief moves in the direction of worry and fear. As soon as you feel worry and fear enter your heart, you know, you can know that there is something in that decision, there is something in that direction, there is something in what you're doing where you decided to just let God out of the equation and you started figuring it out on your own. You decided to start headed towards Egypt because you had to figure it out. A so Abraham is here and he deals with his first trial after having heard from God. He, he, he's standing there thinking, okay, my family has nothing. They don't have anything to eat. Um, I, ha I have to move. The thing is, when you trust God's word, there is no need for skimming. And he started, he moved from trusting God and saying, okay, I'm going to move into the unknown. Do you understand what he did? He said, I'm going to move into the unknown. I'm going to do something nobody's ever done. I'm going to move into a place that you didn't even tell me. You just said to start walking. And he started to trust God. And he moved from trusting God. He allowed worry in his heart. And he ended up scheming. and lie. Oh, let's not fall. Scheming and lying about his wife. When we are worrying, we move from trusting God to scheming. Because a life of faith is a life without scheming. A life of faith is a life where nothing is hidden. A life of faith is a life that anybody can come and kind of move things around. And they won't find anything that you're embarrassed to show. Now, your past, they might, try, like, they might find that. I mean, if you, if you start looking through my life, you'll find my past. And I can just look at you and be like, yeah, that's my past. And God forgave me and it's all over and it's done. But if I'm scheming today, knowing the word of God and knowing what he has for me, it means it doesn't, it's not bad. It just means that I've allowed worry into my heart because I started to take things into my own hands. A life of faith is a life without scheming. And he started scheming and he started lying about his wife. He went for, from confidence to worry. He went from hearing God say, I will bless you, I will make you into a nation, I will do this for you, I will, from God, to they will kill me, they will hurt me, they will do this. 
when we worry and when we allow worry to come in, we move from the I wills and promises of God to the they wills of the world. See, if I don't do these, they will take my house. If I don't do these, my children won't get to go to this school. If I don't do these, then my marriage is going to happen this and this and that. Instead of saying, my God said that he will provide. My God said that he will cover. My God said that he has his hand over my life. But when we allow worry, we move from I will to they will. Sometimes we don't even know we're worrying. Right? I have this thing. Um, when I'm stressing out, I get a rash on my arm. They just started like maybe a couple years ago. So if you see a rash in my arm, you can call me up. But um, when, I, when I worry, when I stress out, I get this rash. And my husband started calling me out. And, and I, he kept telling me, what are you worried about? What are you stressing about? And I genuinely could look at him in the eyes and say, I don't know. I, I don't know what's so stressful right now. But as we started praying and as we started removing things that, so I started looking at things this way. I'm saying, where are areas in my life where I stop saying he will and I've started saying, well, they will. Where are areas where I've stopped trusting in God's word and I've started saying, well, I'll figure it out. I'll skim this thing up. And those were the areas that we realized, wow, that, that's where the stress is coming from. And as we removed those and as we started moving those things out of our lives and just saying again, he will. He will, he will, honestly, the rashes go away. They do. Because I'm not worrying anymore. I'm giving God, the promise maker, I'm telling him again, you made the promise. You have to fulfill it. It's not on me. You gave me the promise. It's not on me. That's just it. Um, he also moves from bringing blessing. It says, all of your descendants, they are going to be here, and I'm going to give you this land, and whoever blesses you, I will bless. And then it says that the Pharaoh ended up having a plague in his house. He moved from bringing blessing to bringing curses to people. He moved from being a man that wherever he walked, blessing was going to come, to being a guy that wherever he walked, people were going to worry, people were going to stress, there was going to be famine, there was going to be um, plagues. What kind of testimony was Abraham to Pharaoh, really? He lost his testimony because of worry. See, worry seems like a small thing. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just worrying. I'm just sitting here biting my nails. It's not a big deal, right? But what we don't realize is that as we move further and further into worry, we end up losing our testimony. We end up losing our testimony because of the things we choose to do, because of the way we choose to behave, because worry takes a hold of our life slowly but surely so that no longer do we have a testimony, but instead what we have is a life that said, yeah, I did scheme and I did tell you she was my wife. And by the way, just so you guys know, she was the half-wife. Uh, she was the half-sister. Um, so he didn't fully lie. It was a half-lie. And sometimes we get content with that. Well, it's a half-lie. You know, I mean... I did go there, and I did watch that, but it was for just a minute. It was, it was fine. And we get content with how that's scheming. That's just scheming. And we lose our testimony slowly but surely. This didn't happen overnight. We read the story, and we think, oh, it was one day he did this, and then the next day there was a plague, and then the next day they left. No, this happened over time. And little by little, as he kept making decisions, Letting his heart be consumed by worry, he lost his testimony with Pharaoh. He completely lost his testimony with Pharaoh. 
And no longer was the God of Abraham a great God because Abraham wasn't showing him a great God. But now Abraham was just a schemer and a liar. And that's what we let our te- that's what we let worry do with our testimony and with our lives. When we take our children, and I, I want to speak to the men first, actually more. There is this thing, I don't know where it came from. I actually have researched it thoroughly and I can't find where it came from. That says that men are in charge of providing and protecting their family. How many of you have heard that? Men are in charge of providing and protecting their family. And, and the people say that as though it's biblical, right? Like in the Bible, it says, oh, your job is to provide and protect for your family. Guys, nowhere in the Bible is that said. Nowhere. It's not in the Bible. The only time that it talks about the fam- it talks about a man providing, it's talking about a widow. And it's saying, if there is a widow in your family and you choose to ignore her, you're not better than unbelievers. You should take care of her. It's not talking about your family. But we've convinced men in this generation that if they are Christians, they have to protect and provide. So they start walking around with this burden upon their shoulders, believing that it is their responsibility to protect and provide for their family. When in reality, it is God's responsibility to protect and provide for their family. And as men start carrying that burden, what they do is actually put their family in a place where they shouldn't be. It's actually show their family that they want to figure it out instead of God figuring it out. That they don't trust God enough to provide and protect for their family, that they have to do it. Now, am I suggesting that men shouldn't protect and provide? No. What I'm suggesting is that that decision should come from who they know the protector and the provider is. See, if men are going to work every day and working 17 hours a day because I have to provide for my family... Instead of going on their knees every morning and saying, God, would you provide for my family and open the right doors for me so that I can spend time with my family and show my children and my wife the kind of man that follows you? I'm telling you, that will make a very, like a greater impact in your family than having a 17-hour job a day could. How many of you just go out and work and provide and protect and get guns and talk about, oh, I have girls, so when they are 17, I'm going to have a gun or whoever wants to date. How about when they are three, you pray for them to be wise? How about they see you when they, you, when you, when they are three, when they are four, when they are five? How about they see you worship God? How about they see you be the kind of man that, that you want them to date? When I met my, my mother-in-law, she opened the door. I, I wasn't even dating Caleb. This was weird. But she opened the door to her house. I was visiting them. I was going to meet his family. We were kind of moving forward, whatever. She opened the door and she said, I've been praying for you since the day that I knew I was pregnant. That's the kind of protection and provision that you want to give to your kids. She looked at me and said that. And she meant it. She gave me a sheet of prayers for your children. And if any of you want it, you can go ahead and email me or put it in your response card and I'll email it back to you. I have it in my house. I have it in three different places. And I read it over my children. They are scriptures that I read and declare over my children. That we read and declare over our children. See, you can worry, gentlemen. You can worry. And you can get the gun. And at 17, fight off every guy. You can do it. You can do all of that. But can I tell you, that is not the legacy that God wants you to leave behind. God wants you to be a man that leads his family. That, the Bible does say, that you're going to lead your family, that you're the priest of the home. And what the priest...
priest did was go and meet with God for the people. That's what a priest does. That's what a father does. That's how a dad provides. That's how a husband provides. And maybe you're single here today and you're saying this doesn't apply to me. I'm sorry. It does. You will get married one day. 97% of people get married. So you will probably get married. If you're not praying for your wife and your children right now, you're wasting precious time. Precious time. You can worry instead and sit there and be like, ah, she's just so bossy. Ah, she's not pretty enough. Well, she does this. She does that. Or instead, you could be on your knees every morning saying, God, would you bring the woman for me? And I trust that you will provide everything for me. And I trust that you will bring the right person. And I trust that I will be the man that you have called me to be so that when she comes, I can honor her the way that you want me to honor her. Because that the Bible says too. Men are to honor their wives. Wives are to honor but instead we worry. And instead we've told men, I, I don't know where, 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 really, I researched it. I don't know where it came from. Your job is not to provide and protect your family. Your job is to trust the God that provides and protects. Your job is to get to a place Abraham decided he was going to provide. Abraham decided he was going to protect. And what did he end up doing? Giving his wife away to another man. That's just how it works. If you are the one protecting and providing, it's never going to be enough. You're always going to feel a burden, and you're going to end up losing your family. To the, it, you might lose it to the world. I'm not talking about, like, you know, you're going to get a divorce. I'm talking you might lose your family to the world. When I was about 16, maybe, or 15, I don't know. I was a mess. And maybe 16, because my sister was about 14. Um, my dad was living in Orlando, and he said he wanted to take us to a concert. And uh, many of you have heard this um, story. No, my dad said he wanted to do something fun for us. So he said, you know, there is the Cirque du Soleil and there is this other thing. It's Orlando. There's so much to do. And my sis, I said, I was more the one that was pushing. I was like, I want to go to a concert. And it was a punk rock concert. I don't even remember who was there. Um, they sing a song that's called Superman, but I don't remember the name of the band. And I wanted to go to this concert. And my dad was like, well, you can choose anything else. The tickets for the concert were like $40. The tickets to Cirque du Soleil were like 160 And I was like, I want to go to the concert. And my dad was like, well, there are so many more awesome options. You know, you could do this or you could do that. I was like, I want to go to the concert. <sighs> okay. My dad said, okay, you can go to the concert, but the deal is that you have to let me come with you. And I was like, okay, but you have to stand in the back. And he was like, okay, that sounds good. So we came, my sister and I put on makeup and got ready and got dressed. And we went to this concert and my dad stood in the back. And about 25 minutes into the concert, my sister and I just felt really uncomfortable. There were a lot of things happening on the stage and it was just icky. And we left, we, we came out into the back and we were like, dad, we want to go. So we left and we went, it was the hard rock, um, well, the hard rock. And then the whole area had all these restaurants. So we went and we had dinner. Many years later, I found out that my dad was standing in the back by the bar seeing little young girls drunk throwing up and he was just praying that we would feel conviction and we would leave. He could have told us not to go. He could have dragged us by the hair out. He could have made it his job to protect us. But instead he decided to trust the God that does. And he stood in the back and he just prayed. 25 minutes you guys. 25 minutes and my sister and I were like I'm sorry and I felt I remember feeling bad and thinking like I feel so bad that I made him spend that money and 
like I want to leave, but I have to get out of here. That's how uncomfortable I was. We had to get out. You can worry about your family. You can worry about your finances. You can worry about your wife. You can worry about your life. But can I tell you, nothing is going to change. If anything, you might just make it worse. You can instead choose to trust the one that gave you the promises. Trust the one that has all these things in the word that say that he's for you and not against you. That he has plans for you. The story goes on and we're going to read chapter 13. So go to chapter 13 with me. So Abraham went up from Egypt. Abraham went up from Egypt. He realized this was, well, he didn't realize. They kind of kicked him out. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot, his nephew, with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Can I repeat that? And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Maybe you are hearing me talk and you're saying like, yeah, gave in to worry. What do I do now? He went back to stand between Bethel and Ai, between the house of God and ruins. But now he knew we're not to head. Now he knew. He went back. Go back. Maybe you've never heard from God. Call this the first time you've, called, you've heard from him. And call this the first time where you're going to pitch a tent. And say, this is the first time. If you've never, if you've heard from God before and you realize that you've given yourself to worry, it's easy, you guys. Go back. See, that's the kind of God that we serve, a God of grace that says, okay, you messed up. You're giving yourself to worry. You're freaking out here. You're making all these decisions and making all these choices that are poor. Go back to the last time you heard my voice. Go back to the last time you heard a promise. Go back to the last time that you knew it was me that was leading your life. And just go back to that tent. Just go back. The Bible says before that, that when Abraham was in Egypt, he got donkeys and male servants and female servants, and he left with more than he came with. And later on, as we keep reading in chapter 13, it says that he had so much that him and Lot could not be in the same place. And we think, okay, so this guy lied, lost his wife for a bit there, did all these things, worried, and then he ended up leaving with more. It's kind of a good idea to worry right? Because we end up leaving with more. Not one of the things that he left with was a blessing. It looked like a blessing at the beginning, but as time went on, it wasn't. Neither Lot nor Abraham were ready to have so much because the land wasn't ready to sustain it, which is why they had to separate. He had to let his nephew go because they weren't ready to have all of that possession. The problem with that is that Lot wasn't ready to be alone without Abraham. Lot was way weaker in his faith than Abraham was. Lot needed to be around Abraham, but he had to go because they were fighting. There was quarreling. So he said, well, you got to go, man. Lot went down to Egypt and he saw the world. And because the heart of Lot wasn't ready for that, Lot ended up lusting for the world. And I'm going to tell you the story of Lot really quick, like super quick. Lot ends up moving towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He ends up moving toward what looks like the world. He says, oh, because Abraham says, okay, we have to divide. So what are you going to choose? He says, 
that looks really cool. It looks like parties are awesome. I'm going to go that way. So he says, okay, he goes that way. He ends up losing everything he has. Everything. He loses everything he has to the point that he loses his wife. He ends up in a cave with both his daughters. His daughters get him drunk, sleep with him, and end up making babies with him that grow up to be two nations, Ammonites and Moabites. Those two nations end up fighting the Israelites for centuries. Because he wasn't ready to be away from Abraham. So, yeah, they got a whole bunch of things. But that wasn't God. It says that they got servants. If you read in chapter 16, it talks about a servant that they got. Her name was Hagar. Hagar was a servant that they got in Egypt. And when Sarah was worried because she wasn't getting pregnant, Sarah says, Abraham, I need you to sleep with Hagar and make a baby in my name. And they do. And they have a baby. And his name is Ishmael. And it's nothing like trouble up until today. Nothing but trouble. Nothing that they got when they tried to figure this thing out on their own was an actual blessing. See, when you go to the world to figure it out, when you go to the world because you're so worried, sometimes you get a little relief. And you think, see, I knew it. I knew that if I worked 20 hours a day and if I made this just happen, it would be fine. Because look at us, we were able to buy a house. You find yourself so stressed out five years later because you can't make the mortgage. It's better to slow down and say, God, what do you want me to do? What is it that you want? The Bible says that he made an altar. Altars back in the, <laughs> which, uh, whatever, it's a long story. I'm not going to tell the story. But <laughs> altars in the Old Testament were the place where people came. And they lay down an animal and they kill this animal as a sacrifice to God. If the sacrifice was acceptable to God, he would forgive your sins. And the animal would take your place because we are the sinners. So the animal would take your place. Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice. So Jesus came, he laid on an altar and he died for the sins of all of us so that we had, we'd never had to do that again. But it says that he built an altar. An altar now, it's a place where we communicate with God. An altar is a place where we come down and we kneel and we say, I give you everything of me. Where we sacrifice our hearts, our desires, our needs, our worries. That's what an altar is today. An altar is a place where we can say, you know what, God? I'm freaking out here. My arm looks terrible. Rash all the way up to my elbow. And I can say, I just give it to you. That's what an altar is. And can I tell you guys that God doesn't desire for you to figure it out. God doesn't desire for you to be successful in the world. Now, will he do that? Yeah, because he's a good God and you're his children. We're his children. But is he sitting here thinking like, well, if they make 200K a year, then he doesn't care. All he cares is that you go back to the altar, that you make altars. Let's just start there. That you make altars and that you say, I give you all that I am. I give you my heart as a sacrifice. I'm not going to worry anymore about these things. I'm not going to worry anymore about my children. I'm not going to worry anymore about my marriage. I'm not going to worry anymore about my finances. I'm not going to worry about any, anything. But instead, Lord, I'm going to go to your word and I'm going to find 
what you say my finances are to look like. Because he says you're going to be prosperous, whatever that means. I'm going to look and say and see what you say about my children. Because it has good things to say about your children. Build some altars. And the band can come up here. Because maybe some of you are thinking here, you know what? I've, been, I've, I've, I've given myself to worry this whole time. I've been figuring it out on my own. I've been giving myself to worry. And you had no idea that all you had to do was really build an altar. An altar was a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. It says that he built an altar and he worshipped God. Abraham changed. And from that point on, he decided to stop being a troublemaker. Well, he was a troublemaker again because we make mistakes. But in the next instance, he wasn't a troublemaker. He was a peacemaker. He looked at Lot and said, Lot, it is not good that we're fighting. It is not good that our people are fighting. What do you want, man? Take whatever you want. I'm not going to fight. He decided to trust God. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to take these lot and I'm going to take these and you can have this corner. He said, Lot, pick what you want. Pick what you want. I'll go the other way. I'll just go the other way. He decided that he was not going to give himself anymore to this scheming and making things happen. But instead, he built an altar to God. He went and looked for God and he said, God, I'm going to build an altar right here, right now. And I'm going to worship you. And that's what chapter 13 says, that he worshiped God. And then after he worshiped God, God gives him a new promise. It's the same promise, just in new words. And he says, the Lord said to Abraham, chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. When we build an altar to the Lord, when we just surrender everything and we say, you know what, I, I sacrifice my heart. I, it's just right here. Will you take it? And we just build an altar when we worship God, then he gives, he expands his promise. He hadn't told him about the dust of the earth, but now he did. And that promise is true today. Maybe you've never spent time at home just worshiping God. Start building altars for your children. May your children say in 30 or 40 or 50 years, I remember how my mom would just worship in the morning. I remember how my dad would pray over me every night. They might say, I remember how they took me to Disneyland every year. And that's fine. But if that's all they remember, they won't have enough weapons to live out this life. I want my kids to look at me and say, I... I remember how you worshiped and you set up altars all over. You set up altars in every corner of my life. I pray for my daughters every night. Every night I pray for wisdom. And sometimes my husband says, gosh, I have two daughters. You might have another one on the way. He's like, three, 
we might have three teenage girls at one point. And I say, you shouldn't worry. <laughs> you shouldn't. Because as we build altars throughout their lives, as I declare over their lives for 15 years, before they turn 15, for 15 years, they'll hear me say, I declare that you're going to be wiser beyond your years and that you will not settle for anything less than what God has for you. I declare over your life that you're going to see yourself through God's eyes and not your own, and you're going to know your worth. You're going to know that God, Christ, God sent Christ for you to die, that you are worth the blood of Christ. They may, they may make mistakes, you guys. I'm aware of that. I'm not so naive. But I know that if they make mistakes and if they are being stupid somewhere, those words they heard for 15 years are going to resonate in their head. Because while they are being stupid, I'm probably going to be home repeating them. And I'm going to be telling God, you remind them of what I said today for 15 years. You remind them. I'm giving them weapons so that when they are 15, I don't have to worry. But I can say, no, I, I gave them every possible weapon they could need. I built altars for them. Everywhere they look, eastward, westward, northward, southward, everywhere they look, my children are going to have altars that we built for them. I will do everything in my power so that they may not escape the will of God. Will they probably sometimes at some points make stupid decisions? Absolutely. They still have free will. They probably will still do a lot of stupid things. But at least I can rest and not worry. And I can rest in the knowledge of saying, I did everything I could. I built all the altars I could. I may not be able to provide Harvard education. They might have to get a loan for that. But at least they have every weapon to survive this world. You can worry, or you can start building altars in every corner of your life. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit our website at www.canvaschurchsd.com.